0: So uh, so this morning we're going to do something at the end of the service we've never done. I vowed we'd never do an altar call in this service, and uh, we never will. But we're going to do something that looks a lot like it. So I'm telling you now, because um, this is a no-manipulation zone, uh, and so you can either just choose right now, yeah, that's not for me, that kind of thing, or you can kind of just uh, open yourself up and say, you know what, I'll listen, and then um, see if God's prompting me to maybe make some kind of an uncomfortable commitment at the end of the service. But just want you to know up front where we're, where we're going. Um, I'm going to push on something for a little while here, and then I'll explain why, okay? Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you why I don't like... Is the microphone on? I'm on? I'm going to tell you why I don't like the cross as a Christian symbol. Why I'm, I am just dislike using the cross as a Christian symbol. And so I'll give you a couple reasons why. Um, first one is it wasn't the earliest Christian symbol by far. The earliest one, and you guys are familiar with it, was the Greek word for fish, which um, in capital letters is this. And it's... Uh, an acronym that basically, um, Jesus' name in Greek is Iesus, begins with an I, um, Jesus, Christ, that's the chi, ch, um, theta is for God, uh, this is for son, Huios. and the genitive in Greek, they do the word order different, so if you do son of God in Greek, it would follow, the object would follow, so God, son, and then the S, the sigma for savior, Okay. Um, So that was the the earliest Christian symbol, and they would do it uh, in a fish like this. They would also do it, if I can draw it, um, like this. Because all of these letters, if you put them one over the top of each other, fit into this wagon wheel, okay? So the, the pizza was actually an earlier symbol of Christianity than the cross. Um, We've got a picture of it, and this is from, you know, ancient Ephesus, okay? So this is the earliest Christian symbol, okay? So kind of in the whole quest to say, let's not necessarily get caught up in Christian tradition um, unless it's good. We weigh it out. Hold on to the good, let go of the bad. Um, What was the earliest and what was kind of the New Testament era way of doing things? This was... The fish, okay? This was the symbol for Christians. They would draw it with their foot on the ground in the dirt, um, secretly sometimes, and scratch it out to find out if people were were Christians. And look at the message of it. The message of it is what? It is Jesus Christ, Son of God, who he is, my Savior. It's, it's this whole package deal. And the interesting thing about the cross is a symbol, Okay? The um, interesting thing about a cross as a symbol is it points to what? Just the atoning death of Christ. Now, the atoning death of Christ was a means. We don't always talk about this enough, but it was a means to an end. So um, in Matthew, Jesus dies, and in the temple, what happens? The, the veil that separates God from everybody else the holy of holies from everybody else this barrier between us and God what happens to it it rips from from what top to bottom it wasn't that an earth, earthquake came and shook the altar in the middle of the temple which is where you offered sacrifices so that you could have fellowship with God there wasn't an earthquake that cracked the altar Okay. It was the veil was ripped. Why? The altar was a means to an end. The cross, likewise, was a means to the end of what? God, God didn't send Jesus just to pay for our sins. He sent him to pay for our sins so that, what? We could have relationship with God so that the the temple veil would be ripped, so that we would be able to come boldly into the throne room of God and have that relationship restored. Okay, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. When we look at just the cross as an interesting thing, it it doesn't point us to the end, it points us to the means. Um, Also, it has a lot of baggage to it. And this is my biggest beef. You see in 3.12... Constantine, who was not yet emperor, came towards Rome and was getting ready for a major battle on the outskirts of Rome that happened over this bridge. And the night before, he saw a vision, and he saw a vision of a cross. It's called the Cairo, okay, the, the Roman cross or whatever. Um, he saw a vision of the cross and heard, in this sign, you shall conquer. And then he didn't understand what it meant. And so Jesus came to him in the dream and said, follow this sign to victory over your enemies. So get behind this sign, this symbol, to have victory in war over your enemies. That was the story of Constantine. So when Constantine became emperor in 313, you have the Edict of Milan. He he proclaimed tolerance for religions, which allowed Christianity to kind of no longer be an outlawed thing. And supposedly he became a a Christian emperor. His life obviously doesn't, if if we kind of lined it up, doesn't show the fruit of the Spirit. I'm just telling you. Um, but uh, this now became the dominant symbol of the Roman Christian religion, was this symbol that was given to Constantine of the cross. And it existed before Constantine in different ways, but now it becomes the dominant symbol. So when you are uh, in the Vatican, you can actually come down into a courtyard where there's a statue of Constantine and it says in in hoc something something latin um, in this sign you will conquer and then you turn right around and you can go into St Peter's Basilica in this sign you will conquer the knights templar which i mean if you saw the da vinci code you know i mean it's like a hot button these days knights templar during the crusades when when the control of jerusalem and the holy land was for christians the knights templar had the cross kind of on their shield their warlike kind of emblem the you know the red and the white. If you've seen any kind of movies or documentaries like that, and the interesting thing about them was, in this sign, they will conquer. So these are guys that had taken like priestly vows almost, but were dedicating themselves to to fighting the Knights Templar, the, the Knights of Solomon's Temple. Okay. Um, in this sign, you will conquer. So the interesting thing as Christianity moves along, the cross was. The dominant, out-front symbol. I mean, just, there's nothing that compares to it. Um, and it led to a lot of different things. One of them being a focus on the death of Jesus Christ and the, the gruesome nature of that death, the cross. It's a big part of the Christians for up until this century uh, always referring in slang to, to Jews as Christ-killers. So that was, I mean, the Jews never were in power. They were always the minority. So they were always treated badly wherever they went. And so slang or or negative terminology would be used, and they would be referred to, if you just think of slang for any minority group, they would be referred to as Christ killers. And Jews were persecuted uh, tremendously in different ways. Um, So that's kind of a history of the cross. So it's really interesting. Christ says the only stumbling block uh, and the New Testament echoes this. The only stumbling block, the only barrier to somebody coming to faith in Jesus Christ should be what? Jesus Christ. So the argument would be, well, putting the cross right there as the Christian symbol is a good thing. Why? Because, I mean, it's putting Christ front and center. And if they can't handle that, it doesn't matter. You know, that's the stumbling block. But you've got to understand there's a difference between a symbol and the message. Um, rap to a lot of you is a negative concept. Yet, Micah, about three years, uh, three years ago, three weeks ago, one of our interns got up here and rapped during worship an amazing praise song taken from, I think it was Psalm 90. Okay, if I had just said rap and you reacted to that, a lot of you would have had a negative reaction. But then when you listen to Micah rapping from Psalm 90 and you hear the message, what happens? It affects you differently, doesn't it? When we put the Christian cross out in front of people, the message isn't necessarily inherent in that. The message they're getting is, um, that's the club and I'm not a part of it. You're reminding me and pushing me to the outside by saying um, I'm one of the not- chosen people, and you're one of those people in that group. The symbol of the cross is different than the message of Jesus. Does that make sense? The message of Jesus is that the outsiders would be able to come in. Next week, we're going to talk about, Jesus says, those that think they see are really blind, and those that are really blind, I'm going to help them to see. We're going to turn everything upside down, and the outside is going to be in, and the inside is going to be out. The message of Christ was for all these marginalized people that they would be able to come find grace and love and acceptance with Him. Okay, that's this message, this inclusive "I love you" message, and the symbol doesn't always accurately portray that, does it? Does that make sense? I mean, let me uh, let me give you a couple other examples. Um, Crusades, the Crusades. Positive word or negative word? Negative word, especially to anybody that's not a Christian, right? Negative word? Well, then why do we call it Billy Graham crusade? And why do we call it campus crusade? How does that affect the people that we should be communicating a message of love and acceptance to? It it betrays a, a little thing in our thinking that we're out to reclaim territory. I had a a seminary professor who was the keynote speaker for five years in a row at the Campus Crusade Christmas Conference. Keynote speaker. And he would say in every class that our calling as, as Christians is to take back territory for the king. To take back territory, real estate, for the king. I I absolutely could not disagree more. But when we use words, it betrays that meaning, right? What does crusade mean? It means we are going to come with force, and we are going to, with our force, take back real estate. It doesn't say that through our actions and our demonstration of selfless love, We're going to win people over to where they're going to want to know the one that motivates us to act so unselfishly. Jesus didn't say they would know you by your symbol. He said what? They, the world, those that are on the outside, will know you by your love. So here's my contention. I don't think that if Jesus were able to come here today and talk to all of us, that he would say, you know what, you guys need more crosses. You need more. More jewelry, more crosses, put ten on the steeple. Um, you should have them all. I don't think Jesus would come here and say what we really need is more crosses. I think what Jesus would come and say is you need more love. And maybe sometimes the cross um, gets in the way of that. Makes it hard for people to really have a relationship with you. Um, maybe you should reevaluate that. The cross was never to be this on the steeple of every church thing. It wasn't in the New Testament. Maybe we should think about that. Okay, so why am I, um, why am I pushing on that? I'm pushing on it because it's a sacred cow. And our religious sacred cows, we hold pretty tight to the chest. And we're in John 9 this morning. And this whole section we're looking at is a part where Jesus isn't even on the stage. It's just the religious people wrestling with what Jesus did. Because you see, what Jesus did was go right after their sacred cow. Um, He healed a guy who was congenitally uh, blind. And and the, the miracle stories of antiquity don't usually involve somebody that was born blind, congenitally blind, but it's usually someone that's lost their sight, regaining sight. So Jesus heals this guy um, born blind. It's a big deal. And he does it on the Sabbath, and he does it by putting um, mud in his eyes. Why is that a big deal? Big deal for two reasons. One, it's on the Sabbath. So by spitting in dirt, making mud, putting it on this guy's eyes, um it would have violated the Sabbath commands not to work. It would have violated it in two ways. One, it would have been considered in those days kneading, like kneading clay, kneading dough. It's strange, I know. Um, and it would have violated a command not to anoint somebody's eyes. Okay. So he goes into a city, and do you think he could have healed the guy the day before? Jesus had been there all week. He could have healed the guy the day before. Jesus went out of his way to challenge the religious authorities on, on several things. And in this occasion, he goes out of his way to heal this guy on the Sabbath, sends him halfway across the town so that it creates a stir, and then he kind of walks off the scene and lets the Pharisees deal with this kind of mess. Okay? He went after a sacred cow of theirs. They had this oral Torah, this oral tradition that said you were not supposed to do certain things on the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, I disagree with that. It's your culture. It's prevalent. It's a cross on every steeple, but but maybe not. And he challenges that. And the second thing by doing this is he, he fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah about the blind receiving their sight. And he's kind of subtly saying, guess what? Uh, I'm the authority. You're not... In authority, I am. And so he pushes into their realm, one, by the traditions they've got set up, and two, with the authority that they have established for themselves. Does that make sense? And so, in this section that um, we're looking at, I'm not going to read all of it because it's really long, but in uh, chapter 9, verse 13 through 34, the Pharisees are investigating this healing. And they bring in the guy, and they say, what's up? And the guy tells him, and, and they don't like that, and they're kind of divided amongst themselves as Pharisees. And then they bring in his parents, like, they're skeptical. Oh, we're pushing back. And they say to the parents, you know, is this your son? I mean, did he really receive his sight? What's really going on here? Um, his parents are scared because there's a, there's a sense that, depending on how they handle this, um, they're either going to lose favor or not lose favor with the religious leaders. And they say, uh, yeah, it's our son. And the religious leaders kind of go back to the son, and then they start interviewing him some more. And there's a fascinating little section in verse 25, and, and the guy who was healed says this, "'Whether he, Jesus, is a sinner or not, I don't know. "'One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. "'Then they asked him, what did he do to you? "'How did he open your eyes?' And he answered, I've told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And he starts getting sarcastic with them, and they get angry back, okay? Um, But they're resisting this movement of God or the truth of God. They're resisting it. And I think this morning, that's kind of where I want to take us Um, I have a title here. I'll give it to you later. Um, But I want to analyze this because it's really fascinating to me. Why did they resist the movement of God? Why did they resist the movement of God? Why did they resist the truth of God? And the first thing, why, is this word here. Ownership. I learned something really interesting when I, when my life turned around at age 22. I had a a best friend by the name of John, Big John. Um, Guy was super laid back, great friend, um, coolest guy you'll ever meet. Was really into NASCAR. I was in uh, South Carolina, and uh, he didn't care at all. I became a Christian. Whatever makes you happy. (laughs) Just didn't care an iota. Didn't affect anything. I mean, he's just as long as Dale Earnhardt was winning. That's um, all he cared about. I started going to this Christian group and met this Christian guy. He was a leader in this Christian group. He'd been a leader for, like, this kind of a couple of years that he was in college. He was now a senior. Um, he, I mean, he had be, been straight as an arrow all the way through college, right? And I got super excited when I met him. And I was like, here's a man of God. This guy's super Christian. I, I was eating it up. Within a couple months, though, the guy, like, turned. you know, I mean, um Nicole used a, a word uh, a couple weeks ago called frenemies. You ever heard that word? Frenemies, like people that you're kind of friends with, but you know that they're really enemies, you know, or whatever. Frenemies. Um, that's, that's how most of you use Facebook, you know, to check up on your frenemies. You know, how bad does their life suck? It's sweet, you know. Um, uh, okay, this guy, uh, this Christian guy, though, After a couple months, he turned into one of those guys. Like I began to realize, man, he was out to get me at every turn. And I I couldn't understand it. This is the guy that's at the center. He's the most religious there is. And and the reason he, he pushed back so hard was why. My friend John had no ownership. None in religion, Christianity. Who's more spiritual than who? He didn't care. This other guy... He had a lot of ownership. It was his identity. It was who he was. It's how people knew him. It was where his value came. It's what gave him his platform. And so, my by me coming in kind of hot and heavy, and I was born with this ridiculously over-the-top, strong personality that, um, love me or hate me, but you can't ignore me, kind of a thing. Um, I threatened his ownership. And see, here's the irony. Most church problems and most church splits, things like that, don't come from the people on the fringe. It comes from the most spiritual people at the middle. They get so much ownership or invested in something that they will destroy the community before they'll let go of their ownership. Is that true? So there's something interesting going on here with ownership. There's kind of an inside and outside. Jesus comes in and challenges the inside. Challenges the inside. Uh, There's a... And so church unity is actually more threatened by the spiritual people not realizing the ownership that they're holding on to than the non-spiritual people. So church unity, if you really want to get at it, it's, it's the, the real leaders that are the problem. I'm the problem. Other guys like me are the problem. It's an interesting kind of thing. But uh, I heard a joke from JC Norrie this week um, through Justin. Where he said there's a, a, a Norwegian guy that's trapped on a desert island or jungle somewhere, or something like that, trapped there for seven years. Um, it's a different picture, so let's just stick with desert island. I'm just going to confuse you. Where is he? Um, he's, he's, he's on this uh, jungle desert island. And uh, he's trapped there for seven years by himself. And then he comes, and there's rescuers, and the rescuers come. And before they leave, he's like, Oh, I want to show you what I've been doing for seven years. And so he takes them over here. Here's my house. This is where I lived. And over here is my, uh, where I cooked, you know. And, and then over here is, is my church um, where I worshipped. And his rescuers are like, Well, what's that building? He goes, Oh, that was my last church, you know. Um, this... <laughs> The, the irony of church divisiveness is it's the very people that promote church the most that are the ones that divide church. There's an irony there, okay? Um, I want to show you a quote that set up this book by C.S. Lewis. Um, actually, before we do that, I want to just say something. Who who did this well? Um, held on to things loosely, didn't make it about himself or herself, who, who held on to it loosely and was able to say, uh, I want God, not my idea of God. I want God's plan, not my own plan. So I'll give you a couple of examples. John the Baptist totally walked off the scene when Jesus came on. He says, he must become greater, I must become less. George Washington uh, let go of power once he had it. Nelson Mandela in South Africa did the same thing. Let go of power once he had it. And here's the insight Jesus did it too. The true mark of greatness in leadership is not what you do when you have power, it's how you're willing to let go of power. The true mark of greatness isn't um, how crafty you are when you've got power, it's whether you have the, um, there's a word, uh, magnanimity, or uh, mag, this mag, what's a good word, Matt? Magna, magnumus magnum magnum P.I. you have this uh, bigness this largeness this this size this humility this presence this maturity this wisdom this stateliness that's the bigness that really differentiates small men small women from big men big women is what you're able to do when you need to let go of power okay and, and Jesus has all the power, and when he comes to, to die, what he's really doing here is he's letting go of it all. He's saying, I'm going to yield myself up to the opposite of power and influence. I'm going to let myself be subjected to the most violent death. And so right before he does that, he looks at his disciples, and they're fighting about what? They're fighting about who's going to be greatest, Right? Uh, and he's like, you know what, let me, let me help you out here, because um, you're missing it. And he puts on this robe, and he goes and washes feet. And we butcher this passage. It, it's, it's so often butchered. We kind of, look what Jesus did. Like, look at the inner strength he had to subject himself to a shameful act. Are you strong enough to do something like shameful like that, too? Are you a big enough leader to get down and play the servant, this kind of shameful position, and earn your, your badge you know, that you can wash feet, too? It wasn't about the action at all. It was about an understanding of power. It was about an understanding of bigness. And Jesus was showing them that this thing is inverted. It's an upside-down paradigm. That that don't you rule like the pagans rule and lord it over people. Don't use power for yourself. Don't use influence for yourself. When God gives you strength, your strength ought to be used to help the weak. God gave you a brain, maybe. God put you in a position of influence. God gave you a career. God gave you wealth. God gave you... um, this wonderful magnetic personality. God gave you relationships or a network. Whatever God gave you, God gave it to you that you might serve. And you have a choice to own that for yourself or to turn around and and use it for others. Give it away. Jesus wasn't just doing an action that showed us how we have to jump through hoops to claim that we're like Christ. Jesus was showing that this whole thing is not quite the way we naturally see it. Our paradigm is wrong. It's fascinating. You go back to Deuteronomy, and God's like, you shouldn't have a king when you get into the land because I'm your king, but you're going to want a king anyway, so I know what you're going to do. You're going to get a king. But when you get a king, he is not to multiply horses. He is not to multiply wives He is not to multiply. And what God is basically saying is, this king is not supposed to to use that position to better himself. He doesn't own it. It's not about him. When you appoint a king, that king serves the people. It's not for him to multiply and grow and become. He's upside down. He's the servant of the people. So... Ownership is this huge um, thing. We have ownership. We're invested in things, and we don't let go of it easy. And so when God is going to do a movement, the truth of God is coming. It's because where God wants to go is here, and and he always tries to align us back in with his will. Wherever we're at, the movement of God is always going to bring us back into alignment with God. The prophets were always trying to bring people back into alignment with God. Discipline is always trying to bring you back into alignment with what ought to be. Does that make sense? So the movement of God, the truth of God, is always going to take us wherever we're at because we zigzag, life is messy, and this is designed to realign us with where God's at. And what it does is it pushes up against our ownership of where we're at. Now, C.S. Lewis had a, a favorite author. This was kind of his mentor. His name was George MacDonald. And uh, at the beginning of his autobiography, he used this quote of George MacDonald. And then he wrote this book, The Great Divorce, kind of entirely around this quote. But the quote is this. George MacDonald said, The one principle of hell is, I am my own. I am my own. And... Lewis writes this fictional book called The Great Divorce. We've got like six copies if you want to get it on the way out. Um, But it's a fictional tale about heaven and hell, written kind of from this perspective, helping us understand these deep drives and deep motives and and deep things that are going on that we don't always realize are going on. I want to read you a little section from it. And it's basically a conversation in hell between two people, and they're talking about the nature of this kind of city and how it's laid out. And what happens is it's spreading outwards because everyone gets their own way. So they're moving further and further out. Listen to this. They've been moving on and on, getting further apart. They're so far off by now that they could never think of coming to the bus stop at all. Astronomical distances. There's a bit of rising ground near where I live, and a chap has a telescope. You can see the lights of the inhabited houses where those old ones live, millions of miles away millions of miles from us and from one another. Every now and then, they move further still. That's one of the disappointments. I thought, you'd be, uh, I thought you'd meet interesting historical characters here. But you don't. They're too far away. Would they get to the bus stop in time if they ever set out? Well, theoretically, but it'd be a distance of light years. And they wouldn't want to by now. Not those old chaps like Tamberlane and Genghis Khan or or Julius Caesar, or Henry V, wouldn't want to? That's right. The nearest of those old old ones is Napoleon. We know that because two chaps made the journey to see him. They'd started long before I came, of course, but I was there when they came back. About 15,000 years of our time it took them. We've picked out the house by now, just a little pinprick of light and nothing else near it for millions of miles. But they got there? That's right. He built himself a huge house, all in the empire style. Rows of windows, flaming with light. Though it only shows as a pinprick from where I live. Did they see Napoleon? That's right. They went up and looked through one of the windows. Napoleon was there, all right. What was he doing? Walking up and down, up and down all the time, left, right, left, right, never stopping for a moment. The two chaps watched him for about a year, and he never rested. And muttering to himself all the time, it was Salt's fault. It was Ney's fault. It was Josephine's fault. It was the fault of the Russians. It was the fault of the English. Like that, all the time. Never stopped for a moment. A little fat man, and he looked kind of tired, but he didn't seem to be able to stop it. Then the town will go on spreading indefinitely, I said. That's right, said the intelligent man. Unless someone can do something about it. He shifts gears here. I'm going to read it, though, because I want you to get it. So you get the picture? Everyone is getting their own way, and so it's just spreading out. Listen to what he says here. What's the trouble about this place? Not that the people are quarrelsome. That's only human nature. It was always the same, even on earth. The trouble is, they have no needs. You get everything you want not very good quality, of course, by just imagining it. That's why it never costs any trouble to move to another street or build another house. In other words, there's no proper economic basis for any community life. If they needed real shops, chaps would have to stay near where the real shops were. If they needed real houses, they'd have to stay near where builders were. It's scarcity that enables a society to exist. Ownership is another way of saying um, what I desire and I want, what I will, is what I'm going to protect and try to advance. It's what I own, it's my little circle, it's what I care about, it's what I'm trying to build into this circle. And it's interesting, Jesus prays and he says, um, this is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done. I said last week that God's will is about God. Do you want to understand what God's will for your life is? You first have to ask the question, what is God's will for God that I play a part in? Because God's will is about God. So thy kingdom come. So another person has said that, that hell is when God looks at you and says, thy will be done. If you want it your own way, okay. Have it your own way. And he steps up aside and allows us to go on that trajectory where we always choose self over God, over community, and we always choose self, what we own, what we want, what we desire. Thy will be done. Rather than us letting go of ownership, and saying, God, where you are is where I want to be. Doing what you want me to do where, uh, when you want me there. Where you are, what you want me to do, when you want me there. I want to be with, with you, God. Bring me back into alignment. I'm teachable. I'm humble. I'm open. I'm listening. I'm going out into solitude and seeking your face. Give me guidance. But I will let go of anything, forego anything. I just want to be where you are. So Jesus comes in. And he challenges ownership, He's challenging the traditions of all of these people. It's fascinating, in France, they're about to vote on a bill to relax restrictions on shopping on Sundays to where stores would be, more stores would be able to be open. You know that it will transform that society? I mean, think of a society where there's no kind of work going on. What that would have looked like, everyone would have been in this conversation because it affects everyone. And Jesus is challenging that and he's pushing back on tradition and he's saying it's not about that. And all of a sudden they have this tension. Do I let go of tradition and follow by faith or do I hold on to tradition and ground my religion? And what we begin to realize is there's a tension between faith and religion. Faith asks questions. Religion gives last words, proclamations decrees. Faith is fluid and dynamic and it seeks to follow and find and let go and yield and submit. And religion is an institution. It seeks to plant itself. It seeks to build itself. It seeks to to kind of protect itself and develop itself. And there's this tension between religion, tradition, and what Christ is coming to do. Now, I was kind of thinking this through and I was saying, you know, there's not too many religious leaders in here. So the whole idea of pushing against ownership of religious authority is not going to resonate with too many people. Okay, but it's a principle that's going on all throughout Scripture with ownership, and I'll, I'll illustrate it real quick. Watch this. You need to give your money to the church. I'm serious. You need to give your money to the church. It's not yours. It's God's. And he, in Scripture, over and over again, commands you to handle his money as a steward by giving to the church your first fruits, living on faith with what is left. And that might mean um, you don't buy the extra Mac whatever. Or that you um, have to trust for your college tuition for your kids just a little bit more. Or that you don't get the bike gear that you wanted. Or that you can't add extra little um, security measures to make your life safe. Or that you can't keep up with the Joneses. But it is unquestionably biblical. So if you open up scripture, God is pushing against you and saying, Your money is my money. This is how I want you to spend it. I want you to give it to the church. Now now we're dead quiet. There was quiet before. This is dead quiet. Um, because it's uncomfortable. Why? Because you have ownership over your money. And you don't like anyone pushing against that little bubble of ownership. This is why Jesus says God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Because it's rare. I was thinking about this week. I was in the bathroom where I do a lot of thinking, and I was going around and around, and all of a sudden it dawned on me, like seriously, this is the flash, right? The flux capacitor moment, right? Um, The thought was, it's really hard to tithe and still be generous with what's left over, and be cheerful about that. It doesn't seem like a big epiphany, but all of a sudden it hit on me. I was like, wow, that's really hard. It's rare. So Jesus says, God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Because they get it. They're aligned. They're over here, and it's wonderful, and God's able to bless them and affirm them and love on them. And like, if, if we took to like 10 of you out there that are really like that, cheerful givers, and we brought you up here and had you give testimonies, I guarantee you it would be this amazing testimony of how God blesses those who trust him with their resources. Crazy stories. And when we get here, all of a sudden God opens it up and takes care of us. But we're over here, all of us, we're all messy. There's a million different kinds of us, um... You know, there's a thousand different varieties of beetles, You know, like uh, Ringo, John, Paul, um, George, right? We're all different stripes. We're all different kinds, but we've got this same thing, and it's called ownership. And we resist the movement of God. We resist the truth of God because of our ownership. How do we do this? How do we resist it? Why we resist it? Why we resist it is the ownership. How do we do this? And we're going to hit on this one a little bit more briefly, but it's this. It's persistence. (laughs) Is that an E? E? And it's kind of like the word resistance is right in there. So I titled this sermon, um, I don't know. I am my own, the art of resisting God. Because when we want to protect our own ownership, here's how we do it. We, we keep pushing back. When we feel threatened, what do we do? We put up fences. We build walls. Okay, we insulate ourselves. We try to protect, and we do that by being vigilant and continuing to push back against whatever threatens us. So, persistence. So, these guys come in and they're pushing back. And listen to this um, crazy verse at the end here. They're arguing and arguing and arguing. They already have their minds made up. How do we know they already have their minds made up? Because it says that they already were going to throw anyone out of the synagogue who would side with Jesus. Like, we're going to just kick them out of the church if they side with Jesus. So, I mean, they've already kind of got their minds made up. They're going to guard their territory, their, their area of ownership. And they're going to push back, push back. So they interview the parents, they interview him twice, they interview all these things. And then it comes uh, to this part. The man answered to them, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. Because they're like, We don't know where he comes from. We've got our ownership. We don't even know where he comes from. We've got our ownership. We don't even know who he is. How could he be an authority? Um, we've got our ownership. We've got our ownership. Like, did he really get his eyes healed? We want to know from the parents, and we still doubt that this really happened, this miracle. So we're pushing back, pushing back, pushing back, and listen to where this goes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. This is the blind man talking. I think we've got it on screen. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And here's what the Pharisees say. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? Doesn't sound like that big of a deal, right? But here's, that's the end of the story. What happened at the beginning of the story? Does anyone remember? Here's a man born blind. Jesus walked along. His disciples say, Who sinned that that man was born blind? And what they're basically saying was, Did the parents sin? Or did he like sin in the womb? Because, Blindness is a spiritual punishment for sin, right? So they're saying, here's an interesting thing. How many angels can fit on the, you know, the head of a pin, right? This Jesus, did his parents sin or did he like kick his mom too much, you know? Because he was born blind and God judges people that way. So it begins with, here's the worldview. I've got my religion, I've got my Sabbath, I've got my religious authority. Um, it's all my ownership. This is how it is. Um, and at the end of the beginning of the story, was who sinned? And then at the end of the story, what comes back? And the ultimate form of resistance was they go back to the beginning and they say, You were steeped in sin at birth, you stupid blind man. They're like cursing at him, like they're, they're protecting themselves by lowering him by calling him names. Got my nice little thing. Jesus does this. Wow, what does it mean? Back to the beginning. Jesus does this. Wow, what does it mean? I resist. There's persistence. Ultimately, I go back to the beginning. It's like a little sprinkler thing. When we really want to resist God, God will push on us. We'll kind of understand what it means. We'll argue back. We'll find an excuse to go back to where we started. And then here we are again. Some of you have already done this, right? When I brought up money, there he goes again talking about money. I bet the church isn't even spending their money wisely. Well, I disagree with how Scripture really talks about money. Like, you know, my taxes are like my tithe. Whatever you said in your mind is where you started. Right? 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 We have ownership. We have our walls. God pushes against those walls. We begin to understand what the implications are. The implications are we have to give up ownership. We push back, continue to argue. Eventually, we're able to make the same argument we started with, and we feel good about it, so we go back to the beginning and we're comfortable. Wow, that's an art form, isn't it? The art of resisting God. Ownership destabilization. God saying, please just trust me. Let me put you in alignment with me. When I give you commands, I mean it. When I say I'm going to bless you if you obey, I mean it. Whoa, but that would mean we change, God. Well, what about this? What about this? What about this? Oh yeah, that's right. I don't like Ken. Back. Okay. Right, Right where you started from. Some of you, um, you've been feeling nudged to be a godly husband or, or to change your circle of friends or to submit your career decisions to God or to turn your time and your energy and your resources over to God and say, it's yours, how do you want me to spend it? Some of you are squandering talent like You have something that's so amazing. God gave you this gift. It might be this mind, this organizational ability, this relational capacity, this artistic gift, whatever it is. And and God's continually trying to push you. I gave it to you for a reason. Ask me what my will is for me and how you fit into it. And you wouldn't believe how this aligns. And yet you argue back. You're persistent. You build up the walls. And every time God nudges, you go right back to the beginning just a little bit harder this time. And we spread a little more out. And God will eventually say to you, you know what? <laughs> um, your will be done. Ha- have it your way. Uh, so here's the here's the kind of conclusion. And I'll just do it straightforward to you. Um, I want to be where God wants me to be. Doing what God wants me to do, when God wants me there—that's my whole heart cry right now for my life. If I can just stay aligned, I don't care where it takes me, where it goes. I just want to be there, and I want to know that I'm there. I want the satisfaction of that, the peace that comes from that, the joy that comes from that. And so it's interesting. I used to use this analogy of going all in, um, like a poker table, because I've I've seen it on TV. And you have, like, these chips, and you can put some of them in the middle and keep some of them out. And what does that mean? There's a phrase for that. It's called hedging your bets. Like, I've got this secure so that if this loses, I've still got this. And that's the game we play with God. It's, we'll, we'll enter God's arena, but it's like blob tag. I'll, I'll get on the field, but I'm not going to let you catch me, God. Because then I wouldn't have the freedom to run wherever I want to run. I'd be tied to you and I wouldn't have ownership and I wouldn't have control. So I'll get on the field and play your game, but I'm going to avoid you. You're not going to grab me. I don't trust you. I'll put these chips in and keep these chips in reserve. And what Jesus was always trying to, to say to people, and he's pushing and he's pushing and he's pushing, and the movement of God is seeking alignment, and he's saying, go all in. This is God talking to you. Take all you've got, sell your houses if you have to, do whatever you've got to do. Just take them all and go all in and let it ride on God. So I've used that analogy before. I'm going to use a different one today. Um, we pass for our offering, we pass around a popcorn bucket. Okay, it's up, down, you see it. Um, and that's where we put our offerings to God. God, I give you this. Does that make sense? What we're going to do is say that this is our offering bucket. And while the band sings this next song and we're all standing, if you are willing to just say, you know what, God, I want a defining moment of decision where I'm going to really go all in because I want to align myself with you. I don't want to argue and then find myself back at the beginning. I want to listen to what you're saying. We're going to say, this is the popcorn bucket, and you just come stand in it. What do I mean by that? I'm saying give yourself as an offering to God. Paul says in Romans 12, present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You take your life, you put it up on the altar, say, God, it belongs to you. You walk out the other side living, but now you belong to God. Does that make sense? So this isn't about pressure. If one person comes down, um, that's cool as long as it's not Justin. Um, If the whole church comes down, that's cool too. I don't care. This isn't about my ego. This is about you saying, you know what? I've been playing games for a long time. I want to let God catch me. It's blob tag. Here it is. I'll yield and align myself with you. I want to go all in. And I want to begin praying about what that means and what the next steps are. And then after we dismiss you, if you want, um, Brandon and Justin and I, if, if you want, we're here to talk to you, pray with, um, get excited with you, etc. cetera. But um, if you would, let's stand together. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing the song. And the offering bucket is up front. Father. It's so simple in Scripture, yet we resist. We're so persistent in our resisting. We fight and fight and fight and fight, but all you're saying is, give me you. C.S. Lewis said, die before you die, it's your only chance. Die before you die, it's your only chance. Father, there's so much truth there. You're just calling us to die to self that we might live for you. The symbolism of baptism is that we would be united with Christ in death that we might raise with him in in life. He is no fool to give up what he cannot lose, to keep what... um, (laughs) He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Father, penetrate our hearts, regardless of where we're at, where we came in, where we leave. Just let your Holy Spirit work in us. May we yield to that. May we be humble. May we follow your calling. May this be a community that, that isn't known by its symbols, but is known by its spirit, its air, its life. In Christ.